Welcome back, everyone, to an incomplete field guide to ministry, coming to you from the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. My name is Marvin Wickware, and I'm Assistant Professor of Church and Society and Ethics at LSTC, and I'm here, as always, with my co-host, Kim Wagner, Assistant Professor of Homiletics. How are you doing, Kim? You know, I am hanging in there. The end of the semester is barreling toward us, which is both gift and trouble, right? It's a <laughs> gift because I know it's it's ending, but it's trouble because I see the to-do list lengthening rapidly um, and the time shortening quickly. But hanging in there and uh, glad to be with you today for this conversation. Absolutely. How are you? Oh, yeah, the end of the semester. I'm tired because it means an entire academic year is behind us. And when you teach those J-term classes, that oh. year really feels like a year yeah, instead does. of two semesters. So I'm just, you talk about the end of the semester barreling toward us. I'm definitely not moving at any kind of pace you would call barreling. I'm just have lumbering out of the way of it. Right, right. And I feel like, for me, it's barreling toward me, too because or feels that way because I have summer classes coming up so Ugh. I have to kind of get my head around that so I'm trying to kind of get this semester done so I can get my full uh, focus on the summer classes but it's been a good semester right there's yeah, been some absolutely. rich learning this semester so. a good year and a good D- year despite the pandemic it has In been a, a good and year and through we've <laughs> made it we've made it a, we've we've worked to make it a good year and I think that's uh, a gift yeah All right, our plan for today. Kim and I are going to have a conversation about ministry that's accountable to the broader community. Then we're going to have an interview with the Reverend Senator Kim Jackson, ordained Episcopal priest and vicar of Church of the Common Ground in Atlanta and Georgia State Senator for District 41. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that conversation. Me too. So, Kim, what thoughts do you have on how we engage in ministry that's accountable to the broader community, especially as we consider those who are most vulnerable? Yeah, I think this is such a rich question, and we could come at this in so many different ways. And I know you and I always approach these topics uh, from different points of view. When I think about that question and think especially about parish pastors, community leaders, um, nonprofit leaders... I think a lot about how if we are going to really engage in ministry that is accountable to the broader community, it pushes us to reimagine what it means to be a leader and to almost redefine leadership. And this is a conversation that is not happening in a vacuum, right? We're having this conversation at LSTC. Uh, The larger theological community is having this as we think about what it means to form leaders for the public church. It means that we have to think about what it means to define leadership. And so for me, I think that when we're thinking about leaders who can engage in ministries that are accountable to the broader community, I think there are four aspects of leadership that pushes us to engage more deeply. And that is leadership that is deeply self-aware that is deeply contextual, that is collaborative, and that has capacity for uh, transition and change and ambiguity. Um, So let me just say, uh, those are the kind of four features, and let me dig in just a minute with them. So the first is the self-awareness, right? And we've talked about this before on the podcast, but I think it's really important for leaders to recognize that they can't be all things to all people. They also have particular social locations. I have a particular social location as a white woman, as a ordained Presbyterian minister, as a professor at the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. I have my own social location and each leader has their own into which they bring all the implications of that social location into their context. And every leader has their own gifts, and every leader has their own limitations, right? And so I think we have to be really honest about what it is that we bring into a situation, and to name those things that we bring that we are gifted at, and then those things that are not in our wheelhouse or in our experience or are part of our gifts. Um, Another way to think about that is that it asks us to be honest, too, about our own self-interest. And I know you're going to talk about that a bit later Uh, But thinking about what is it that we are longing for in this ministry? What is it that we want to do? 
And that may or may not be in alignment with the context into which we enter. So that leads to kind of the second thing, that as the leader is deeply self-aware of their gifts, their limitations, their social location, their self-interest, that they should also have awareness of the community and seek after awareness in the community. So thinking about what is the community's understanding of their gifts, their self-interest, their hopes, their dreams, their limitations, but even more to understand and articulate clearly what are the communities that we are being called to serve? Because on paper, we may be called to serve, right? The church that has hired us and is paying us, <laughs> and you should serve them. But what does it mean for that community to serve the broader community? To care for uh, homeless neighbors, to care for the community that surrounds the church that may not look demographically like the church. And so to be really clear and honest, about who it is that we are called to serve. Because I think it's always the kind of obvious answer is, well, the people who are paying me, right? But who else are we called to serve beyond that? And so thinking about what it means to nurture and ground the congregation in the context beyond the walls, right? In the needs, the hopes, the concerns of people outside the four walls of the institution or the church or the nonprofit. And to think about um, what are actually the needs out there, right? Not just perceived or stereotyped needs, but what are the deep needs? And I think we can do that by obviously just getting to know our neighbors, uh, caring for our neighbors, but also building broader connections in the larger community, bridging ministries. I think one of the greatest gifts that I experienced in my ministry uh, when I was a pastor in Virginia was the chance to just get to know other pastors and nonprofit leaders and politicians and judges in the community who then said, oh, that's a really wonderful idea. You know who's already doing that? Or you know what other community is seeking to care for, for folks who are experiencing homelessness? Is this church? How can we partner? Um, in fact, we participated in a larger Care for the Homeless program in Portsmouth, Virginia, but our church was located on literally the side of the bridge that most homeless people would not go. We had the resources. There was another church downtown that did not have the financial resources to do that care, but they had the building. So we partnered with them, right? And we thought about how do we care for our neighbor and how do we broaden our view beyond the four walls or the edges of our property, right, to care? And so building these kind of broad connections. And I think, to me, that is cultivating real leadership, which leads to my third thing, right? Leadership is like true reimagined leadership is collaborative. And it sounds really obvious. It sounds really cliche. But I think true collaborative leadership is actually hard. Mm -hmm. It requires a lot of self-awareness and a lot of humility. And it requires you to be willing to share the spaces of leadership in your institution, to share the pulpit, to share the classroom, to share committee meetings, right? So that you are not uh, necessarily making sure that you have your hands in all the pieces and control that, but instead opening up opportunities for folks to share a testimony, right? For folks to teach one another, to have community members come in and teach your community, to send your community out to teach and to learn, right? To share these spaces of leadership. And I think it looks two ways, right? It's welcoming outside voices in, and I hate that outside inside distinction, but those voices that would not normally be mm -hmm. in your spaces of leadership, inviting them in. My church in Atlanta, who I've mentioned before, one of the great things is in the basement of that church is the Central Outreach and Advocacy Center, which works a lot with homeless population, underhoused, um, poorly housed folks in Atlanta and helps, helps them find housing, get IDs, get access to the resources that will help them. And one of the great gifts of that organization being housed in the church is the opportunity to just participate in the testimonies and the stories of folks who are experiencing homelessness in, in Atlanta and to welcome them not just into the central outreach advocacy space, but what would it mean to welcome them into the pulpit, into the, the Sunday morning Sunday school classrooms, right? And to think creatively 
about what it means to welcome those voices of those communities that that are surrounding uh, the broader community, especially the most vulnerable, inviting them into spaces of leadership. I think also since since we're talking about accountability, right, you can have these moments where you invite in a guest speaker and they share a testimony and it's wonderful and beautiful and then they're gone and we learned something and they never come back. But there's the possibility, right, of, of saying that within our little church or our little organization, we actually want to have outside voices that, that have a formal recognized Absolutely. role in relation to us that we're actually accountable to, that when we want to change a policy for how we do things here, we actually have to talk to these outside voices about that to say, hey, we're thinking of changing this. Does that affect you? <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Absolutely. Is there something we're not we're not noticing here because we're just the folks who who are in this building? Absolutely. It's the difference to me between inviting a guest speaker and inviting someone to be in leadership, right? And yeah. I love that you named it that way with the accountability piece built in. Because I think the other way that we invite others into spaces of leadership, which leads to accountability, is cultivating leaders in the community that can both go out and function independently mm -hmm. of you or of a formal leadership team, right. but who also can come toe to toe with you, right? Who can call you to account or bring to your attention or the attention of the broader leadership team things that they may not notice or we've missed. Um, and so having these multiple opportunities for leaders to both be cultivated from within the community, as well as bringing in leaders, not just guest speakers, right, but leaders to hold us accountable, to invite us to greater vision and imagination for how we interact in our broader community. I think that to me is at the heart of collaborative leadership. And that is not uh, a model that we have done well and it's a model that takes a lot of trust in others mm -hmm. as well as a kind of humility that, that it takes a great amount of humility to offer opportunity for other leaders to shape the community that you've been called or, or that you are paid to lead, right? Yeah. It also takes recognizing different modes of leadership. Absolutely. Right? So I, I, I am a person that people will say, oh, you have gifts for leadership. Why aren't you... Why aren't you taking leadership roles? And it's because for me, leadership means participating alongside other people and trying to have an influence that way by encouraging other people to speak up and trying to highlight voices that have been overlooked. My way of performing leadership isn't being in charge of things, right? right? And so, you know, when I'm in a congregation, you know, not as the pastor, but just as a, as a member, I tend to function effectively as a leader when I'm not being elevated to some kind of formal leadership role, but rather when folks learn to trust that I have something to say. I, I think being able to, to recognize and affirm leadership when it's not kind of captured within all of the, all of the traditional leadership positions right. is, is part of that cultivating leadership it's, it's recognizing leadership people are already developing on their own and going, yes, this is a gift to our church. Absolutely. We don't need to now make you into, say, hey, why don't I show you how you really do leadership? <laughs> right? Absolutely. I think one of the greatest things, and I love that you named it that way, is that a, a true leader can do is to align people's gifts with the work, Right to be able to articulate vision, to communicate clearly, and to help people who already are bringing gifts and graces for very powerful work to say, hey, that is an amazing gift, and here are all the spaces where it might align, and finding those kind of moments of synergy in the community that allow leaders like you to step into your kind of leadership and to allow you to do what you are good at, knowing that it is not what I am probably good at. And so I think a, a true leader in some ways is trying to work themselves out of having to feel like they are in charge of everything. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, if you are doing all the things, you're doing many of them not well, 
And you are not using your gifts and your energies towards the things that you are most gifted at, right? Towards the things where you could really make a difference, where you could really reach out to the broader community. But if you can cultivate the gifts of people, as well as just identify that you have wonderfully gifted humans already in your organization, in your church, in your community, and you can align those gifts with the mission and the work of the church or of the organization, that leads to true leadership for you, as well as leadership that makes space for other leaders, mm -hmm. right? Leaders that can cultivate the leadership gifts in others. I think that is really the way that this kind of call to care for our broader community really inspires a new vision of leadership. Yeah. And then the last thing to say is I think that a, a leader, especially today, and if 2020 slash 2021 has taught us nothing else, uh, that we have to cultivate as leaders in ourselves and in others the capacity to tolerate ambiguity and to handle kind of ongoing negotiation, growth, conversation. We have to be able to be flexible and pivot and, and, and handle loss, right? Handle when things don't go the way we had hoped and handle the disappointment of community when things do not unfold the way we hoped or expected. And so... I think also just to tolerate that kind of ongoing ambiguity of when we are inviting multiple people into leadership, when we are cultivating gifts of leaders, when we are seeking to align gifts that are already there, what that means is we lose some control, which is a gift, but it's also really hard for, for folks who feel called to leadership, mm -hmm. right? And to be able to tolerate the ambiguity of disagreements, of people not going about things the way you would, right? Uh, to deal with the fact that you may be um, building relationships in one aspect of your ministry, like you may be really engaged in ministry with and among folks experiencing homelessness, but you may then discover that your church has a lot of anti-racism work to do that they have not even begun to approach. And, and mm -hmm. having to live in that ambiguity of doing good work but at the same time, seeing and noticing and recognizing the ways that it still is all imperfect and, and we're, we're kind of figuring it out and negotiating it along the way. I don't know that this is like a one-to-one -one kind of correspondence, but it, as I'm listening to you talking about this need to tolerate ambiguity, which is always a favorite theme for me, it almost sounds like if you're a leader and, and the leader of a community that's really accountable to others in, in your broader community. A bad sign is if you're just kind of making decision after decision and there's no friction, right? Yeah. It's just, yep, this is how we do things. We're going to do it. It goes smoothly and, and we're good to go. That that's, that's a sign, not that everybody's needs are being met, not that you're making decisions that, that just work for everybody because that's virtually impossible it's a sign that the people who are not served by your decisions do not have an effective voice in your community, right? That, or Absolutely. that you aren't paying attention to them or something. Because there's going to be somebody, right, who, who is not all right with what you're doing, and you need to be seeking them out. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's exactly right. I do think that corresponds. It's being able to tolerate the ambiguity that growth and aligning all of our gifts is always in flux. But it's also that that kind of conflict, that negotiation, that ambiguity is a sign that we're actually working together mm -hmm. to do this. The only way it goes smoothly is if it is handed off 100% to one person and they just make decisions and nobody else cares. Or the person who is making the decision is stomping all over other people's concerns and interests or just not, as you said, seeking them out and therefore is able to just kind of make these these kind of lofty declarations, <laughs> right? And not being in the mix of negotiation and ongoing discernment. And I, I go back to that language too of discernment that I think part of what ambiguity invites is growth, discernment, and requires just deep communication. I think if we, I'm going to launch out here. 
I think if we do nothing else as professors at a seminary that are forming leaders for a public church, right, that what we can nurture in our students is the capacity to communicate fully and theologically, right, their own self-interest, their own gifts and graces, as well as their own limitations, and that they then can communicate vision to others and invite others' gifts and graces and limitations into conversation. And I think to me, like, this is what it means to reimagine or to more fully imagine. Maybe it's not a full reimagination, but more fully imagine what it means to be theologically grounded leaders in today's world. And in today's world, meaning a church that cares about the broader community and especially the most vulnerable, um, a church that is deeply planted where it is set and is nurturing folks to lead in the broader community, as well as inviting folks to come into the church so that that boundary becomes even more porous. I'm so interested to continue the conversation with you around kind of thinking about this in a different way. And I know you you want to think about this a little bit as self-interest. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on uh, this work and, and engaging the broader community. Yeah. When I think about accountability, right, we, we were kind of tossing around, what do we want to talk about today? And we thought about the language of solidarity. And I, solidarity has become such a kind of loose, broad term that can just mean, you know, I, I changed my Facebook profile picture in solidarity with X, Y, and Z, right. and that's it, right? Yeah. Uh, whereas as, as accountability kind of gets more towards, oh, no, your day-to-day life, right, is impacted by the fact that you care about, right, and are Absolutely. in relationship with this other group of folks, right, uh, whoever they are. And, and so that... That always kind of brings me back to that that question of self-interest, right? If if you really are going to be impacted, it's not or it can't just be in ways that don't matter to you, right? For it to really be like meaningful accountability. Your sense of what you need, right, has to somehow get tangled up with with other folks' sense of what they need. Um Again, to, to have that kind of full sense of, of doing ministry that's accountable to others. It, it also occurred to me as, as you were talking that I think in, in one sense we're, we're talking about mission, right? A, yeah. About what it means for the church to go out into the world and, and to actually be faithful there, right? Yes. Not just to go out in the world and come back, right? Right. But, but to actually go out into the world as as those who are serving Jesus, right, witnessing yeah. to the good news of of the resurrection, that that looks like building relationships of of accountability, right, yes. and and that are grounded in clear understandings of self interest. It looks like kind of coming to the community or around the church, right, and and saying, "What do you need?" Here's what we need, right? right? How can we build a a stronger community together? Absolutely. Right? So and I, also, I, oh, mm, sorry. Go ahead. And also, doing that keeps us from this kind of mission minded where we're going to go out and create people in our image, mm-hmm. right? And it and so to be aware of our own self interest and others is so important, I think, in also avoiding this kind of colonizing mission work. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think even thinking about outreach in terms of how do you get people to come to church? A pretty good way is to be a place that's actually good for the community, right? <laughs> Not a place that is somehow standing apart from the community in, in some kind of absolute sense or a place that claims to know what's good for everybody else, right? right. This, isn't, this isn't what attracts people. Nope. So I, I, just a, a real quick clarification. All right, what's self-interest again? It's It's not just thinking about what I need over against everybody else, right? It's, it's not selfishness. It's, it's not that kind of embrace of your own needs to the exception of others, but rather just the, the kind of general awareness that we're creatures and creatures have needs. And not only is it okay, but it's, it's necessary to care about those, right? Your, your life should include making sure you have what you need. And so whenever you're having life together with others, 
part of that life together should be the different parties involved saying, this is what I need. I need you to help me with that. I need you to not do X, Y, and Z, right? right. And vice versa. Uh, so self-interest is, is really just bringing up that question of what do you need? And especially, what do you need right now, right, in, in the situation that we're in? So I, I think there are a, a few ways to think about, about uh, aligning self-interest, right? So that it's not just, hey, we're aware of it, but we're actually actively working so that the, the self-interest of folks in the church and the self-interest of folks in the broader community actually kind of come together in ways. So you need to understand your own self-interest, and you, you talked about this some earlier. Uh, you need to learn about the broader communities, right? And then there's that dimension of building relationships that makes this actually happen. So it's, as far as understanding your own self-interest, you talked some of, about uh, the... I think very well about understanding your own self-interest as an individual leader, right? So I'm, I'm mainly going to talk about kind of understanding the community, right? Understanding yeah, no, the, the congregation's self-interest, Absolutely. right? Or if, if you're working for a, like a nonprofit, right? Understanding the self-interest of both the folks who work there and the folks who are funding especially, yes. <laughs> right? Your work is, is often really what's more relevant is, okay, we have these three grants, Yep. And those compel us to work in these ways. Yes. Well, if you're going to come to the community, that needs to be front and center. This is what we're here to do, right? Absolutely. How does this fit with what you need done yes. <laughs> and, and what you can offer, right? So I, I think when you're thinking about a, a church or, a, or an organization's self-interest, I'm assuming that that you have a grasp of the complexities within that, right? That it isn't like a monolithic, oh, our church needs this, you know, these three things. There are going to be different folks who have different understandings of that. And that's a whole process of kind of coming together to a shared understanding, as you do, say, in making a budget, right? That these are our priorities, you could name what our community needs in all kinds of ways, but these are the things we're going to kind of focus on as what we need right now. I think it's important in, in understanding your own self-interest, and specifically as Christian ministers, to recognize that, that God's call on our lives right, is, is a call to the transformation of self-interest, right? not, not to the rejection of self-interest. And so as we get a sense of, of what we need, it's important for, for our faith to, to kind of be part of that set of needs. That for Christians, self-interest isn't just, I need food, I need shelter, I need a job, very important. But there actually is a component of, of what we need that is about having just relationships with others, right? This is what we're called to by by our creator, right? By this, by this power that speaks to the core of our being and sustains us, right? As we go through life, we need to follow that call, right? Like I, as deeply as we need to have a roof over our heads, right? And, and so I, I think it's important to be able to articulate that, right? To understand how our faith impacts our self-interest, to not just be limited to, to how other folks might articulate their self-interest, but to be able as, as faith leaders to say, no, I actually need us to be a loving community, mm -hmm. right? Like I'm not okay <laughs> right? Right. on a basic day-to-day -day level if I'm living in a community where some people are murdered by those who protect others. Right, that this isn't just if I'm a you know upper middle class person who is not affected by this in any visible way, what our faith should be about in part is is making so that actually we are affected, that we're not okay, right? Mm -hmm. That we have an actual self interest, right, in 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 seeking justice, not just that we have a, a kind of intellectual theological position that it is right to seek justice. Right. So I think you have to understand your own self-interest as a group in terms of those socioeconomic political realities, but also in terms of your faith, right? And in, in terms of what it means 
for the church to be in a place and to to be fully itself and and not just kind of quiet existing alongside whatever the status quo is. So then you also need to learn about the broader community's self-interest. I think in in part this means not just listening to to kind of formal leadership, right? And especially the folks who present themselves as, oh, I know, yeah. I know what's going on, right? Or or not just paying attention to official reports, like, oh, well, this is this is what the you know city of Chicago has said are the priorities for the South Side, right? right? But but actually actually learning how folks in communities understand themselves. I think a lot of times this looks like paying attention to community organizing groups that are doing that kind of grassroots listening and and going out and, and gathering people together to develop leadership and listening to those leaders, right? Not just listening to the person on top of, of some organization that has plenty of money to do studies. Those can be good studies. You know, who knows? Yeah. Um, well. But but learning to to listen to that broader set of leaders, and and I think trusting the the folks in your organization, in your church, who are from really from like grown up in the place where you are, and trusting that they can point you to oh yeah no this person knows what's going on right, right. and Absolutely. and taking that seriously. I think you you also have to avoid the temptation to think that. As a, as a church leader, right, like as a person of faith or as a well-educated person or whatever variation of this that, that, that you're tempted towards, that you really know what's going on in a community uh, or, or that you're objective, right? Right. Uh, the, this idea that, well, I realize that you all think that your problem is that you need, you know— some kind of uh, accountability for the police or that you need there to not be policing here, right? Well, actually, what we really need is whatever crackpot solution you want to offer. It's important to really believe that people can articulate their own self-interest and that they actually understand it. Things go really wrong, right? right? This is a, speaking of mission, right? This is kind of the honestly, the more prominently known, like, uh, shadow kind of side of, of mission, is that that tendency for Christians to think, we know what needs to be done. If everyone around us isn't listening, the problem is is either that we haven't said it clearly enough, or that they're being un- unfaithful somehow. But the idea that, no, we actually need to learn, right, what what's happening is... There are centuries of, of kind of weight behind that, that difficulty that, that Christians can have. The, the last thing I want to say about learning about a, communi- a broader community self-interest is that there are, there are going to be conflicting understandings of self-interest, right? Yeah. Just like within your little you know, community, people are going to want and need <laughs> different things. Of course, like in a neighborhood, Right, there are going to be different understandings that might be completely contradictory, and so I think there are just a few things to think about in those kinds of cases. One is when justice is at stake, right? When you have part of the community that is profiting off of another part of the community's exploitation, you have to take sides, even if you are outsiders, right? Even if even if you're you're from one side of the bridge. But everybody comes and goes to church on the other side of the bridge because right. that's where their grandparents went to church. Yep. And they moved over to the to the wealthy neighborhood 30 years ago, whatever. Even if you're, you're relative outsiders, when justice is at stake, you, you have to take sides. You absolutely. Right? Absolutely. And as, as you said a, a week or two ago, not taking sides is taking sides, yes. right? You were talking about preaching and not yeah. preaching a political message is, is preaching a political message. Similarly, not taking action, right, when there, when there are clear sides of, of exploitation or violence is taking action on behalf of those who are benefiting from the structures that currently exist. When it's a matter of strategy, though, oh, should we approach this justice issue through nonviolent protest, or should we approach it by coming to city council meetings, right, and making sure our voices are heard, 
or should we approach it by uh, working to get a candidate elected through this, you know, uh, organizing group? When it's a matter of strategy, if it's your community, right, if you're from there, you've been there a while, your members are from there, you need to be involved in those kinds of strategy discussions and working that out. If you're relative outsiders, though, right, if if you as the the pastor, right, are not from somewhere and it's your first year there, you need to step back and you need to let either the other leaders, right, in your congregation uh, or just the folks in the community kind of work out those issues of strategy and be ready to support them. Or if your whole congregation is not actually from the community that you worship in, you need to sit back and, and be ready to support whatever the, the folks who actually are dealing right with this situations deem is, is appropriate, an appropriate way to, to actually engage the, their issues. So the last thing I want to talk about is building relationships, right? right. Just to uh, add a, a couple more points to that. The kind of information that, that I'm talking about, right, that you can learn about a community comes through relationships. It's usually that you've, you've actually shown up, right, and, yeah. and have been supporting folks' own understanding of what they need to do, right, to, to meet their needs. And you start learning more about why things are the way that they are, right? You start getting stories about how different people have been impacted. I mean, this is, if you hang out around community organizing work, right, you hear a bunch of stories. You hear a bunch of people's stories about what the water utility company has done, right, across your neighborhood. That's a big one on the south side of Chicago right now. Absolutely. But relationships also bring self-interest into fuller alignment, It's yeah. not not saying that, hey, being friends with someone will mean what they need is what you need. No. no. But when your lives become entangled, and especially when you're talking at the level of, of a church in a broader community where there's just so many relationships that can be formed, right, over years and years, when the community is hurting, the church will be hurting, right, because it's your friends and your family it's your people, right? Even if they're, uh, as you said, not the people who are paying you, right? Yep. But the people that you are serving nonetheless, when they're hurting, you're hurting. Yes. Uh, and, and so that's only really going to be the case if there are actual long-term re- relationships that, that involve that awareness of self-interest, right? That involve being real, full people with needs and gifts and everything you outlined, right? The last thing I want to I want to say on on building relationships is that again as the church it's it's not as though we just need to say okay we're like any other group in the community right? right the church has particular gifts that it can offer to the broader community and and our relationships need to be grounded in that churches are actually really amazing at at being resilient right at at persisting uh, you know yes. if you look around the U.S., there aren't a lot of voluntary organizations at this point in, in our society, right? There used to be all kinds of groups that people would be part of, you know, and, and now it's, it's really mostly churches and community organizing groups. There aren't a ton of, of groups that, that people belong to year after year after year after year after year because they want to. Right. Yeah, right. People go to work and and people go to school and those kinds of things. But church is is an amazingly kind of resilient kind of way of being together. And and that's it's not for no reason, right? Similarly, other religious communities, right? Not just right. Christian churches. Absolutely. But that's one of the things that, that churches can bring to the broader community is that that ability to persist right with with some cohesion over time even when things are hard yeah. uh, the church can also offer spaces for lament right this mm-hmm. this is what we do if we're doing church right it's right? holding open space for for people to hurt yeah. and this is why often when there is yet another murder right by the police Churches are holding vigils. Absolutely. And all kinds of people turn up to them. People who have nothing to do with that church show up because they need that space for lament. But the church is, is one of the groups that 
that knows how to organize that space, right? Like yes. knows how to actually open up that space. Well, and I would add, because you're singing my song here thinking about <laughs> lament, um, but I think also it's, I love the way you're thinking about the church opening space for that, but also church has practiced language for mm -hmm. that. Right. One of the things that I think every time our heart breaks, we know with trauma, we know with is that we lose our language. We lose our capacity to articulate into that kind of void of of fear and anxiety and grief and that the church has practiced language for how we lament. Right. For how we hold space for grief that does not completely void out hope, that we hold space for grief that calls us to work right? That the, the church has language in our scriptures. And again, not just the Christian church, but religious groups. But I would say the Judeo-Christian scriptures have a special language around lament and that we've practiced it before and we know how to do it. And so I think also there's not just the space, which is so important. And people do darken the door of churches they would never enter otherwise during these times of grief um, and these times of of just crying out for justice, right? And crying out for needing things to be different. Um, but also this language the church provides. Absolutely. And I think that ties to the the last kind of gift I want to mention for now, which is hope, right? Yeah. And and that there's, there's language that Christian liturgy, right? And Christian theology have to offer about hope. And, and I think with, with both lament and hope, there's plenty of language. Not all of it's good, right? right? <laughs> There's plenty of just stock phrases you can turn to and toss them out there. Like you can get up to a community that's suffering and say, God won't give us more than we can bear. Uh, and uh, you know, don't do that. Right? Please don't do uh, that. But so, so there needs to be some thought given to, to what language is used. But th this is where I want to bring it back around to, to be clear that we're talking about accountability. You can get feedback about the language you used if you have real relationships with people outside of your church, right? Yes. Folks can tell you, you know, it was really nice that you did that, but <laughs> you right. said this, and I, that has nothing to do with, with how I experience the world. It has nothing to do with how most of the people there are experiencing the world. Or you said this, and I was really surprised you were talking about your God thing, but the way you did it actually spoke to to what we're going through, right? It actually was a way to find that hope in the midst of continued exhaustion and, and suffering, etc. Absolutely. And just to, to just offer a word of encouragement at the end here, I think the gifts of engaging our broader community toward uh, opening ourselves and opening our communities for relationships with accountability to the broader community is it's a challenge but it's such a gift and i think it's who we are called to be as a church as a group that is seeking for the redemption and transformation of the world and trusting that god is already at work and we are invited into participating in that good work so i think all the things we named today, just the challenge of them, but also just the amazing gift of them is so important to acknowledge. Absolutely. I think that's a good note to end on. Let's take a break. Perfect. Welcome back, everyone. I am thrilled uh, that we have the opportunity today to have a conversation with the Reverend Senator Kim Jackson. She is an ordained Episcopal priest and vicar of the Church of the Common Ground in Atlanta. She is a Georgia state senator for District 41 and the first openly LGBTQIA plus senator in Georgia. And most importantly, she's my seminary classmate. And so I'm just delighted and so grateful that she's taken the time uh, to join us. So welcome, Kim. It's so wonderful to talk to you today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. This is great. So could you share a little about yourself and your work and your ministry? Yeah, sure. So um, as you mentioned, I am the vicar for the Church of the Common Ground. 
Um, and the Church of the Common Ground is actually a church without walls. So uh, we don't have a, a church building, which uh, in COVID times has been a real blessing. <laughs> we already meet outside. Uh, everyone, are, I would say the vast majority of the members of my congregation are currently experiencing homelessness or have experienced homelessness. And so I tell people all the time, you know, tonight I'll go and I'll lay down in bed um, in my house where all my congregants will find a place on the streets in downtown Atlanta. So it's a it's a it's a hard ministry. It's a beautiful ministry. And I'm, I'm really grateful and in so many ways, just honored to be able to serve in that capacity. And then the other side of my title. So that's the reverend. The senator <laughs> side uh, is that I am the uh, state senator for District 41, which is here in Atlanta, Stone Mountain area. And um, I, I like to tell folks that. I am not only the vicar for people who are homeless, but I am also their senator. I, I very much take that to heart that when I go into the Capitol, I go in with the stories, the troubles, the problems that my parishioners are experiencing outside on the streets. Um, I bring those stories with me into the Capitol. And so I'm there to serve as their senator, along with the people of District 41. That's a powerful way to say that, that you're both their vicar and their senator. How do you understand the the relation between church and society? And and how in particular do you understand what politics are? Yeah, so politics in, in many ways, I think we say this about liturgy. It's liturgy should be the prayers of the people or the work of the people. Uh, I think that policy uh, is the work of the people and the people being all of us. So one of the reasons why I find it important that I serve as an LGBTQ person is that um, LGBTQ folks are people who should be a part of the politics, a part of this work of figuring out how we govern each other. And when it comes to thinking about ministry, when it comes to thinking about theology and the public square and society, I happen to believe in a type of Christianity and a gospel that um, has something to say about how we govern our lives together, about how we be community with one another. And so when I think about policy, when I think about doing the work of politics, which is making laws, I'm, I'm thinking very concretely about um, how do I put into action the words that Jesus left with us, these gospel words that call us to care for our neighbor, to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to care for those who are sick, right? Those are things that I'm thinking about as gospel messages that I then bring into the work of, of legislating, of governing people. That's awesome. Um, you talk so beautifully about this kind of intersection that you see between the reverend part of your work and the senator part of your work. And I'm wondering how you could, if you could say more about how you see your policy work shaping your ministry, especially your ministry at Church of the Common Ground, and how you see your ministry really influencing where you invest yourself in your political work. Yeah, that's such a great question. And I actually spent, before I decided to run, I, I spent some real critical time thinking about how will me being a senator impact my ability to be a priest um, and a vicar to this congregation? And mm. um, one of the things that I grew really clear about over the process of listening to my parishioners be excited about my candidacy um, <laughs> was that they actually do yearn to be able to be close to people who have power. Mm. And that is one of the gifts that I get to bring to them, right? Um they can say, and it's so fun to me, every time I have certain parishioners, they'll introduce me to somebody else and they'll be like, hey, this is our pastor and our senator, right? Um, they're, super, they, they're super excited about it. Um, but also, more importantly, I get to bring the power of my office um, to help them in, in a numerous ways. So um, I have a parishioner right now who's trying to find his daughter who was um, given up for adoption 25 years ago and she was three years old he had no control over that process and my office you know when you get a phone call when defects gets a phone call from senator kim jackson they answer the phone mm. and in a way that they just didn't answer before when i was just reverend kim jackson and so that has been a real gift to me to be able to use the power of my office to help in in situations like that and then on the flip side, when I think about how I advance policy, so one of the very first bills that I introduced 
was a bill that would require the state of Georgia, if you've been incarcerated and in their custody, um, that they would have to release you with a Georgia state ID, an identification card. Hmm. And that comes from working with people who have been incarcerated and released, and they're released out onto the streets without an ID. They end up homeless because they don't have an ID. And that is one of the largest obstacles that many of these folks face. And so because I've tried to help them navigate that as a pastor, I've been really excited about being able to try to help them navigate that now as a senator by introducing this, what I hope will turn into a law that will require folks to get released from from prison with an ID. I figure if we know who you are well enough to incarcerate you and lock you up, then we know you well enough to give you an ID when you leave. Absolutely. That's right. You've talked a little bit about uh, the gifts of this complex, right, shared ministry and political work. Uh, could you say a little bit more about the the gifts of the work that you do and, and also the challenges? Right. So I think one of the biggest gifts that comes with doing this work, um, and that's both in the Senate and with Common Ground, is that I get to have real firsthand on the ground experience with issues of homelessness. So it's not theoretical. Um, so when I go back over into the Capitol and, and and Kim, you'll remember this, like I I work with people who are experiencing homelessness literally across the street from the Capitol at Central Press. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah. that was my home church when I lived in Atlanta. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. I go from one side of the street working with people who are experiencing homelessness to the other side of the street to try to legislate around these issues. And because I have an up close, very, you know, front row seat to these issues, when legislation comes that seeks to essentially fix homelessness, I'm able to bring some expertise into the room that would not otherwise be there. And I think that's a huge gift to, <laughs> I think that's a huge gift to, to, state, to the state of Georgia, quite frankly, mm -hmm. yeah. but especially the people who are trying to, to do really good work around homelessness. And so I think that's one of the gifts that I get to bring to this. And then the other side of this is that I um, have been very invested in helping people who live outside to understand that they have a voice inside of the Capitol. And we've been doing programming uh, as a part of our church to talk about what it is to be to be a public theologian, right? So we teach people who live on the streets theology and we teach them also about government. And uh, because they know somebody who's inside of the Capitol, you know, me, their pastor, it's made them feel a lot more comfortable with being able to come inside of the Capitol. And, you know, right before COVID, we even did a thing where we did a field trip and I had them call their state rep to the ropes and ask her, what are you doing about homelessness, right? Um, and they they asked it with boldness and had ideas for her. And um, so I am watching my own parishioners develop their confidence and a true sense of, I am a part of this community too, and you'd have to listen to me. And so I, I think that's been a real, a real gift to them and to, and to the state to have folks who are stepping up and saying, "I want you to hear from me directly." So that I mean, this is such a an amazing story, and I, I'm so excited for our students to to hear this. I'm, I'm finding myself wondering about how you got into this. Right. Like I can see how powerfully your ministry and, and your political work come together. What made you decide to, to run for office? Yeah, well, I've wanted to run for office since I was a since I was a kid. Honestly, um, it's, it's interesting. I had a calling to ministry when I was just about eight or nine years old. And I was told that because I was a girl, it was something that I couldn't do. And I kind of accepted that for for a while. Uh, and then when I was 13, I went to a city council meeting and I saw somebody, um, he was the first black mayor of our town and he was presiding over that meeting. And I just had that light bulb moment of, oh, like this is something I can do hmm. all to reach the end goal, which I think this was the true calling that I experienced when I was eight was yes, a calling to ministry, but more specifically, it was a calling to make this world better for other people. That was, you know, the root, the heart of that eight-year-old uh, hearing God 
was about saying, I'm called to make positive change in the world. And one of the ways I knew I could do that at eight was to be in ministry. The way that I figured out at 13 was through elected office. And so um, this has been a long road of trajectory of trying to figure out how to make those two things work together, how to make both callings fit. Um, and it hasn't always been clear to me that it would fit. And um and it may not always work uh, together right now, but right now it is. And I'm, I'm really grateful to see, to be able to combine both ministry and elected politics in a way that feels right and um, and very much feels like an answer to both callings. That's wonderful. Thanks for sharing that story and sharing your own kind of sense of call to both of those spaces. So we have a handful of listeners. Our students are actually required to listen. Um, it's part of their assignment. But we also luckily have other folks who are listeners who are pastors and community leaders. And so I wonder what advice would you give future pastors or community organizers who are seeking to engage political work as a part of their ministry? Yeah, I think the first thing that I want to be clear with folks is that you have a voice. And that voice needs to be heard in the public square and specifically in the realm of politics. Now, as a pastor, I've learned all of the rules really clearly about what it means to be engaged in politics versus partisan politics. And we can't be involved in partisan politics, right? You cannot stand in a pulpit and endorse a particular party or a specific candidate. But what you can do is you can talk about issues and I am very clear that as a person of faith, our faith has something to say about issues. It has something to say about making sure there's access to health care. You know, Jesus gave us that example of being willing to care for people. They didn't have to do anything to get their healing, right? Like you just had to be. And Jesus was there and offered it to you. And so the Bible has something to say about that. The Bible has something to say about mass incarceration. Jesus says, you know, he came to set the captive free. And so if you're preaching that gospel in your churches, in your pulpits, then I, I would hope that you would feel empowered to bring that same message. And you don't even have to clean it up and make it tidy for politicians. You can bring that same message down to your capital or to your city council and your county councils, because those things that we learn as Christians about how to treat our neighbor um, should directly influence how we govern. And so I hope that folks will come and speak very clearly and boldly as people of faith, because those are voices that are worth listening to and that people are yearning and ready to hear. That's a powerful articulation of uh this idea that it's kind of the core idea behind the course that I'm teaching, right? Public church, the, this idea that church isn't just about this kind of uh, message that's kept within the walls of a church or <laughs> within the community that gathers in a common space, right? But really is a public message. So thank you so much for sharing that. The mm, last question we, we like to ask all of our guests is uh, if there's an event or an issue or an organization that you'd like our listeners, both our students and our broader community to know about? Yeah, so here in Georgia, and I think this is gonna unfortunately be an issue across the country, we are fighting for access to the ballot box to remain engaged in being able to vote easily and legally. And uh, so I hope that folks will be listening out wherever they are across this nation to see what kind of laws are being passed that might restrict the vote um, or open up the vote. And as a Georgian and as a Southerner, I'm particularly invested in Fair Fight. Um, Fair Fight Action is an organization that works here in the South to protect access to the ballot box. And that is the root and the heart of our democracy. Um, we can't have a democracy if people aren't allowed to vote. So I hope that folks will get engaged in those issues to protect access to the ballot box wherever you are. And if you have a heart for the South like I do, I encourage you to check out Fair Fight. Kim, thanks so much for all of this, for your wisdom, for sharing your story, for uh, modeling for us what it means to kind of live a very public faith. It's been uh, such a wonderful gift to have you on the podcast. Well, thanks so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. And I, I hope that it's helpful. And if there's anybody out there who's thinking about maybe I want to run for office one day, but I don't know if I can do it because I also feel called to ministry. Well, know that you can do it. And there are people who are ready to support you in that work. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much. And blessings on 
all your ministry. Well, thanks so much. You all, blessings to you all as well. Thanks. Right. Thanks for being with us yet again. And we want to offer our thanks to all the folks who make this work. Uh, first, as always, our thanks go out to Eric Fowler, our editor. You can find him online at ericoutloud.com. Also, thanks to Michael Leotis, Frantishek Janik, and the LSTC Tech team for all of their tech support. Thanks to Keith Doc Hampton for the wonderful music that we listen to on this podcast. And thanks to the Lynn C. and Stuart W. Herman Jr. Fund for Innovation and Theological Education for their financial support of the podcast. You can always be in touch with us at lstcpodcast at gmail.com. And you can find out about upcoming LSTC events at lstc.edu slash events. Thanks for listening. Or just the folks in the community kind of work out those issues of strategy and be ready to support them.